Life Audio. So glad you're with us today. As we prepare to dig into the teaching of God's Word, I want to make sure you know that I have more resources available on my website at BibleStudyHeadquarters.com. You'll find audio to listen to, videos to watch, and articles to read right there on the site. Everything is geared toward helping you grow in your knowledge of God's Word and your relationship with Jesus. So when you get a second, head over to BibleStudyHeadquarters.com and check it out. Now, let's hear a quick word from today's sponsors. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Tonight we're going to be looking at Matthew's Gospel. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at the first 12 verses of this passage together. So Matthew chapter 2, starting with verse 1. And I was debating what I wanted to call our, our message tonight, but after thinking about it and uh, spending, spending some time in this passage this week, I thought, let's talk about this idea of embracing, not eliminating our competition. And I'll show you in just a moment where my mind is with that. Matthew chapter 2, starting with verse 1. <clears throat> this is what the passage says. We're told here, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When, king, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, go and search diligently for the child, And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures... They offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray. 
Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for the, the privilege that it is to be able to look at this portion of Scripture together this evening as we come together on this Christmas Eve and celebrate the incarnation of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we're grateful for the variety of things that we see in the Gospels that give us a picture of the things taking place during that season. Things that took place at the time of Christ's birth, things like this passage of Scripture that took place uh, sometime after, not too terribly long after, but a little time after. Lord, Lord, we're just grateful for the picture that we're given of all of these things as we see them in Scripture. And we know, Lord, that your Word is aiming to point our hearts to your Son, through whom we find salvation. So we pray, Lord, that you would do that miraculous work in our minds and in our hearts this evening as we gather together. Thank you, Lord, for this privilege. We pray that you'd speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So I I imagine, like most people, when I was in high school, I used to wonder often what I would do with the rest of my life. I thought, you know, I wonder what the rest of my life's going to look like. I wonder what my time is going to look like after I'm finished up with my schooling. I remember really wrestling with some ideas. One of the ideas I actually, uh, it's never really escaped my mind. I posted something uh, about it on Facebook the other day, and I think I've I've got everybody thinking I'm going to jump right into doing it. I'm not. I don't have permission from my wife to do this. I do not have her blessing. She made this abundantly clear. But I always dreamed about owning a car wash. I always thought that would be one of the, like, one of the coolest things, and she's like, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. So, at least not yet. You know, I'm still working on her on that one. But one of the other things that, that I started thinking a lot about during that period of time was I started realizing that I had a desire to teach. I noticed that I liked teaching. I knew that I needed more practice at it, but I liked teaching. And outside of a traditional schooling context, I wondered what kind of application I would find for that desire. And so I started getting more involved in my church. I had a variety of outlets that I was able to to kind of practice that skill a little bit in. Uh, You know, people allowing me to do that, people allowing me to speak, uh, teaching Sunday school, teaching things like that. Now at this season of my life, I get to teach quite frequently through our worship services here at the church, through our Bible studies, through the different events that we do. I also get uh, to teach over at Cairn University. Very grateful for that. And in this online era, one of the things that's become very much part of my life over the past few years is uh, teaching Scripture online and teaching a variety of other things online. And one of the things that I find myself teaching online that was completely unexpected is for people that like to teach but are trying to figure out how to deliver their content online. started realizing that that was something that I had a desire to do something I became practiced in doing, and so over the past few years, I've been doing that more and more, and in the midst of doing that, I had a question from somebody recently who is setting up, he's setting up an online business, and he had a question for me, and and, and he wanted to know if somebody was already offering the same type of thing that he was offering, he thought, how should I respond to my competition? That was his question. He said, I have an idea for an online business, an online platform, and I wonder how should I respond to my competition? That was his question. And I thought it was an interesting question, so we talked about it for a little bit. And this is what I said to him, and you could tell me if you think this was good advice or not. But I I said to him, I said, you know what, I don't think you have any competition. And my thought with that is this. There's only one person with your personality There's only one person, there may be other people who teach the content you teach, but there's only one person with your personality. 
and only one person going about things exactly like you're doing it. And so my advice to him was, don't treat other people like they're your competition. They're not your competition. I said, embrace your so-called competition instead of thinking about working against them. I said, that's a much It's a much better mindset to have in the kind of business that you're trying to set up. It's a much better mindset. You'll you'll lose much less sleep if that's how you focus on things. Now, if you're a ministry leader or if you're in some form of business or if you're a politician or if you're in other kinds of leadership, what do you think about that advice? You know, just telling him, embrace his competition. Don't try and eliminate the competition. Is that, is that something that you would consider good advice? Is that something that you would be willing personally to do, or is that good advice for somebody else, but maybe not something that you would take personally? Uh, by the way, yesterday I actually had the chance to see something that I, I kind of forgot about. Um, do you ever find yourself just getting nostalgic and watching old things that, and when I say old, I just mean stuff from your childhood, so however long ago that was, right? So I grew up mostly in the 80s and a little bit in the 90s. And uh, yesterday I was watching old Christmas commercials from the 80s. And I was like, all right. And so I I thought it was entertaining. And a Burger King commercial came on. Now, they have not sponsored this message tonight. If I had time, I might have asked them to endorse what we're doing here. And, um, you know, it could have helped us with some of our roof repairs and stuff like that. But Burger King has not endorsed this message. But um, I was watching this, and there was this Burger King commercial, and at the end of the commercial, it was a Christmas commercial for Burger King in the 80s, and at the very end of the commercial, they said, Merry Christmas, McDonald's. <laughs> and I was like, well, 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 that's getting mentioned in tomorrow night's message, because we're talking about this idea of don't eliminate your competition, embrace them. And why am I even bringing any of that up? I think sometimes, you know, sometimes my kids are like, Dad, sometimes when you're preaching, I look at this, and I'm like, I wonder where Dad's going tonight, you know, like... What journey are we on, right? It's supposed to be a journey to Bethlehem tonight. You know, we're thinking about these things. Wonder, I'm looking at my daughter's face right now. She's like, Dad, I still don't know. No one knows, Dad. What journey are we on? I'm saying this because this is a concept that Herod would have done well to embrace in the midst of the context that he was in during these months right after the birth of Jesus Christ, the events that are referenced right here in Matthew chapter 2. These are things that took place in the months and in the years, possibly up to even two years after Christ was born. But it tells us something about Herod's mindset and Herod's attitude, and it wasn't really positive. He wasn't, something, he wasn't somebody who embraced his competition. He sought to eliminate his competition. And if you look in Matthew chapter 2, I'll just show us a couple verses here from it. But it says, when Herod the king heard this, so it's referencing him hearing from the Magi, from the wise men, this message that the king of the Jews has been born in the region. And it says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. I think this is interesting. We'll come back to this in a second. And all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. This is his mindset. This is what he's wondering about. When you look at what Scripture tells us about Herod, it reveals that Herod was a jealous man, and he was a leader who was very paranoid. He was a very insecure leader. He was insecure about the fact that something might threaten his power, that he might lose his power. And so in hearing this message, he found it disturbing that he might be facing some competition from a recently born child. And so he's wondering, what's going on here? And the impression that we're given in the Scriptures was that when Herod was troubled, Everybody was troubled. If Herod's bothered about something, what happens? Everybody else becomes troubled because they're thinking, 
what is this insecure man going to do? What is this insecure leader going to do? This person who just seems so paranoid about losing his grip on society. And they knew that he was likely, based on his personality and his track record, to take some extreme measures. So when Herod was troubled about this, everybody became a bit troubled about this. But the Scripture tells us that Herod had heard about this recently born king from the wise men, or the magi, as they're sometimes called. And when we look at this portion of Scripture and many of the traditional portrayals of these wise men, we tend to think um, that there might have been three, but it's possible that there were more than that. But typically, people say, well, there's got to be at least three, right? Because there's three gifts mentioned. You know, it tells us here that, that there was gold and frankincense and myrrh that they gave. And so many people look at that and they say, well, there may, you know, it seems likely that there might have been three. Some people believe there might have been up to 12. We really don't know. And the truth is, we don't know a whole ton about them. People have also speculated, what were they into? Like, why are they called wise men? Where exactly were they from? What were they doing? What were they into? Some people speculate that it was possible that they were Zoroastrian priests who practiced astrology, that they were from Eastern countries, and that that's what they would do at that time, and that seems like a likely possibility. But now, as people who tended to focus a lot on the stars and thinking about the stars, here it tells us that they were divinely being led by a star. They're noticing a particular star. And the interesting interesting thing about this star is that the star that they're following here, it's leading them away from their superstitions, not deeper into their superstitions, but away from their superstitions to the king of Jews to the source of truth, Jesus Christ. But as this is taking place, the Scripture reveals that Herod was genuinely troubled, and he was troubled at least on two levels, because one of the things that bothered him was this child that the Magi, that the wise men were referencing, was being called by a title that he considered his own. Like, what do you mean the king of the Jews? You're looking for the king of the Jews. Herod's thinking, hey, if you're looking for the king of the Jews, guess what? You found him. I'm the king of the Jews. If you're talking to me, you're talking to the king of the Jews. And they're, they're wondering, no, we're, we're wondering the one who was just born, who is the real king of the Jews. So he's troubled in hearing that. But he's also troubled, I think, in the fact that the wise men, they're not just coming to inquire about Jesus. They make it very clear that their intention is to come and to worship him. They want to worship him. That's why they're there. They're not just there to to greet. They're not just there to uh, give gifts. They're there to worship him. And so here the scripture tells us that Herod went so far as to ask the chief priests and the scribes, the people that knew the scriptures. And when you look through the Old Testament scriptures, what do we find? Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, pointing to the earthly ministry of Christ, the Messiah who was long promised. And if you look at... uh, In the book of Daniel, you could actually do the math and calculate exactly when he was going to be here based on the things that are revealed in in Daniel's book. And, uh, And so Herod is asking the priests and the scribes, tell me what the scriptures teach. Tell me where this Messiah, this King of the Jews, is to be born. He wanted to know what the Word said. But it's and this is very interesting. He's making a a deep inquiry into what Scripture teaches. He wants to know what it says, but he doesn't actually want to obey it. Isn't that an ironic thing when you think about it? That he would have some confidence in his mind that what the Word says 
is going to be fulfilled, or he's at least curious about what other people believe about what the Word happens to say. But he's looking at it, he wants to know what it says, but he doesn't actually want to obey what it actually conveys. We see that kind of response to Scripture frequently, don't we? That's not just an ancient thing. That's not just a Herod thing. That's something we see all around us in many respects. I went to Bible college, and uh, in Bible college for four years, I could tell you there were people there that were curious about what the Bible said, but you could see from their life afterward, they weren't really concerned about obeying what it said. They just wanted to, I think you just want to win a trivia contest. You just want to win at least one category if you ever get on Jeopardy. You know, what's our purpose in actually studying the Scriptures? The truth is, if you're studying the Scriptures with an earnest heart, what you discover is that it's pointing you to Jesus Christ, and Christ makes it abundantly clear that if we actually love Him, we'll obey what He teaches. It's plain and simple. I can't say to you that I love Jesus if I don't actually obey what He teaches, but here Herod is saying, I want to know what the Scripture says, but he has no intention whatsoever of obeying what the Scripture says. And the truth is we could easily find ourselves doing the same exact thing because our human nature just wants God on our own terms. We want sometimes, and I'm pointing the finger at myself with this just as much as anybody else, but I think mankind, myself included, sometimes wants the benefits we can get from Jesus without really at times wanting Him to sit on the throne of our hearts as our King. Sometimes we find ourselves wanting to be the one calling the shots. Quite frequently, that becomes the story of our lives. And here you have, you have Herod, he's saying, I want to know the details, but he obviously has no intention of obeying Christ. He has no intention of worshiping Christ like the wise men do. But the Scripture goes on. When you look at verses 7 through 9, it tells us this. It says, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly. So there's a public aspect to what they're doing. They're going around, they're talking to people, but now he summons them secretly It says, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, what do you think about that statement as he makes it? That I too may come and worship him. Sound like something that's the motive of an honest heart and honest lips? So you have other motives? It says, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So it's interesting. You have Herod here. He's doing some investigative research. Deep down, what he wants to do is eliminate his competition. He looks at Christ as competition. He wants to eliminate his competition. But he tries to give the wise men the impression that he wants to worship Christ with them. And obviously that couldn't be further from the truth. But the scripture tells us the wise men, they went on their way to Bethlehem. There they actually find Jesus, again, having been led by the star, which now rested over the place where Jesus was. And it's a very interesting contrast to observe the different reasons that these men were seeking Jesus. Herod sought Jesus so he could eliminate him, and the wise men sought him to worship and honor him. And again, that contrast, I think it begs a few questions. Are we seeking Him? Do we actually seek Him? Am I seeking Him? Are you seeking Him? And if so, why? Why are we seeking Him? Why do we care? Why do we care to actually find Him or, or be curious about Him or, or, or seek Him? You know, it's interesting. Some of us, all of us have, a, have different elements to our life story that, 
maybe overlaps, and then some of us have different things that have taken place over the course of our lives that are very different. But some of us in this room can testify to the fact that we actually came to faith in Christ. We were blessed to come to faith in Christ during our childhood. Always very, very grateful for, for uh, parents that take the time to instruct their children in the Scriptures and tell them the Gospel, and children have the privilege to grow up and know Jesus from a very early age. It's a wonderful thing, and if that's your testimony, uh, be grateful that somebody taught you who Jesus is from an early, early season of life. And then there are other people in this world who don't feel they have a need for Christ at all. There are many people in this world that at certain seasons of their life just kind of look at their life and say, you know what, I think I've got this from here. And I would imagine that that's what most people in this world probably think. I think most people in this world are looking to themselves for answers. They're not looking outside themselves. They're not looking to Christ. And then you have other people who actually come to faith in Christ at a later season of life, after going through a variety of experiences, and maybe, maybe after going through a season of crisis or trial, and then realizing that the things that they were trying to depend on at an earlier season of life showed themselves to be insufficient, that they needed divine help, that they needed Christ's intervention. And the truth is, Jesus is desperately needed by all of us. He's just not always wanted. Because if we truly get close to Christ, there is an obligation that He makes upon us, and that's the obligation to worship Him, to love Him, to actually obey His teaching. We all need Him. But I hope that we realize that while there's still time to actually respond to Him. But here you see the wise men genuinely responding. And I love the, I love the context that we're given here because it just doesn't give us data. It also tells us some of the emotional response that these men were expressing. It says, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then the scripture tells us, then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. We look at these gifts, by the way, and... uh, you know, the tradition that we have of exchanging gifts, obviously it comes from this moment. But it's a fascinating thing. The Scripture here tells us that the wise men, they find Christ, they bow down before Him, they worship Him, they, re- they realize that they had been supernaturally led to Jesus. And that concept of rejoicing, it's used multiple places in the accounts that speak of the, the birth and the early years of Christ, but right here, you see that it's the wise men actually rejoicing. Now, put, your, put yourself in the spot of Mary. You know, here it tells us here they were invited into the home of Joseph and Mary, and upon seeing the child Jesus, they worshipped him. Do you imagine being Mary, seeing all these things take place? We were talking about her this morning at the morning worship service and some of the things that she would ponder and just be amazed by. And could you imagine seeing these these people of prominence who had just had, they were obviously people of prominence, they just had an audience with King Herod. You don't just get to walk in to talk to a king if you're not somebody of prominence. But now these same men who had just spent time with their king are now coming and visiting their home. And not just visiting their home, but bringing gifts. And not just bringing gifts, but bowing down and worshiping the child that Mary recently gave birth to, this child Jesus. I mean, 
If you put yourself in her spot, if you put yourself in her mind in that moment, there were so many things during that season that she would look at and she had a firsthand view of that she just thought, this is amazing. This is amazing what the Lord's allowing me to see. But do you ever think about the significance of the gifts that the wise men brought to Christ? Do you ever think about the fact that there's a little bit of a deeper symbolism to the gifts that they offered him? They brought him gold, they brought him frankincense, and they brought him myrrh. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Why these things? And what are they foreshadowing? What are these gifts foreshadowing? Why would they select that? Is it just random stuff because it tended to be you know, fitting things that they would think for the king of the Jews, or is there something more significant to it? Well, when you look at gold, gold is something that ultimately, when you look at, at how it's referenced in Scripture, it's actually a symbol of divinity. And in practical terms, what's Herod about to do once, they, once he realizes that, it, you know, Scripture says, uh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they, they departed to their own country by another way. When he realizes that they're not coming back to him, when he waits long enough and they don't come back with an answer, and he's thinking, hey, there's a king out here, what does he do? He has all the male children in the region, ages two and under, executed. That's what Herod does. But what do Joseph and Mary do? Scripture tells us that they fled to Egypt. They left the region, they fled to Egypt in practical terms. How do you think that trip was funded? Most likely it was funded with the gold that the wise men gave them. That's, you, you look at that and you realize just the sovereign, providential activity of God orchestrating all sorts of things. You know, Joseph and Mary were not people of, of rich means. They weren't people that had a whole bunch of money or anything like that. But here you have the wise men coming and they give them gold. It funds their trip to Egypt. They're able to escape and get out of Herod's grasp for a period of time. They go to Egypt. And I, I think that gold financed that trip. Scripture also says they gave them frankincense. Frankincense was used in worship, something that would be burned in worship. It would be, it'd be used as, as a burnt offering. And when you look at what Christ had come to do, He came to basically offer Himself as an offering on our behalf. Came to this earth ultimately to take our sin upon Himself, die on the cross in our place, and rise from the grave on the third day to defeat sin, Satan, and death and share new life with all who will trust in Him. But he was giving himself as an offering. And you look at this, you look at this gift of frankincense that Christ was being given. It's, I believe, symbolic. It, sim- it symbolizes this idea of an offering. It was often used in that kind of context. But then there's one other gift that he's given here, and it's myrrh. You know what myrrh was frequently used for? It was a spice that was used in embalming. It's a symbol that's, that's pointing to his atoning death. It's showing what he actually came here to do, to live the perfect life for us and then die in our place, but then rise from death on the third day. But they give him the gold, they give him the frankincense, they give him the myrrh. These aren't random gifts. There's a point to it. There's symbolism in it. And they rejoice, it tells us. They rejoice in being led to Jesus. They worship him. And then they leave as changed men. Because Scripture tells us that all things in creation were created by Jesus Christ. And here you have these wise men who have now probably spent their life up to this point directing their worship in the wrong direction. But now they've met their Creator. 
and they worship him. And they've left as changed men. And I'll tell you, if, if you're somebody that's just known about Jesus from a distance, and you go from knowing him at a distance to seeing him up close to worshiping him, you'll be a changed person as well. They were changed men. Jesus is inviting you and me to do the very same thing, to worship him. Now, here's the thing. I don't know. By the way, I, I get so excited when it's, it's Christmas Eve and we get this chance as just a, a church family and guests that come in from other areas to spend this time right before Christmas Day worshiping Christ together, celebrating what he's done. And I don't know what, what led you here tonight. Some of you I know really well. Some of you I know a little bit. Some of you I don't know at all. Some of us just met for the first time this evening. So I don't know what led you here tonight. It might be tradition. It might be a genuine desire to worship. It might be a sense of obligation, like maybe your mom made you come, right? Um, my, my, by the way, my grandmother passed away many years ago, and my dad tells me every Sunday morning, he's like, if I don't feel like getting up for church, I still hear my mom's voice, right? You know, I still hear my mom's voice saying, hey, get up, right? So maybe your mom, maybe your mom made you be here one way or another, right? Maybe just a genuine desire in your heart to be here. I don't know what led you here this evening. But here's the thing. I can tell you this, and I'm 100% certain of it. The Savior of this world does not want you to leave this place in the same condition that you were in when you entered. He doesn't want you to leave this place in the same condition you were in when you came into this room. Jesus, he's not interested in helping us retain the trappings of our old life. Because that wasn't really life at all. What he is interested in doing is giving every single one of us a brand new life in him. And he offers that to anyone who will receive the gift of salvation from him. It's a gift. You can't earn it. None of us deserve it. The only thing you could do is say thank you for it. And he offers that to us. Now, there's a a Scottish minister. I was reading something that he wrote. He actually wrote it back in the 17th century. His name was Henry Skugel. I don't know if anyone's familiar with that name. I don't know a lot about what he's written, but he wrote a book. um, It's called The Life of God in the Soul of Man. And I'm going to read this like he said it, just a statement that he made in that book. He says it kind of in old English, but it's a good point that he makes here. And he makes a statement in the book. He says, God hath long contended with a stubborn world and thrown down many a blessing upon them. And when all his other gifts could not prevail, he at last made a gift of himself. And what he's saying is, God has blessed us in so many ways, but there's only one gift that he could ultimately give that could change us completely, and that's the gift of himself through his son, Jesus Christ. The Lord wants to change us. Someone once said, I don't know who to attribute this to. I've heard it many times, though. Someone once said, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness, so God sent us the Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you have any fun memories from Christmases when you were growing up? Anything that still sticks in your mind? Maybe some unique experiences? I have a few fun ones from my childhood. I remember when I was in sixth grade, we had a rather unique Christmas that year. And I remember, my wife gets a little bit of a a kick out of this because she feels like I was able to talk my parents into most things. I think she's right. 
to a certain degree. But I remember one year, I actually persuaded my father to let me and my sisters go shopping for our own Christmas gifts several weeks before Christmas. Would that seem a bit unconventional? My dad's a practical man, and I think in his mind he was like, this actually seems like a real time saver. And I was like, Dad, can we, can we just do that? Can we just maybe you know, go shopping for our own gifts? You just give us a budget, set us free in the Viewmont Mall in Dixon City, Pennsylvania, right up by Scranton. I said, would you do that? And at first he was resistant, but as I persuaded him a little bit further, he's like, no, I think I'll, I think I'll do that. This sounds like a great idea. And so he agreed, and we had the most entertaining evening. We accomplished this all in one evening going through that mall, buying all of the obscure things, like the most obscure things that we wanted that our family would never have even thought to get us or probably wouldn't have even allowed us to get, but because we were just running around the mall filling bags with just whatever, whatever we wanted, uh, it, it, it was a lot of fun. And in the midst of the shopping spree, I remember I saw a remote car for sale, a remote control car. And uh, if you could picture it, so picture this would be, you know, mid-80s, and um, Lamborghinis were a really popular car at the time. And I remember it was a bright red Lamborghini Countach, right, if I'm saying that right. I remember looking at that, and I was like, boy, that's a pretty sweet Lamborghini. And, uh, but it wasn't, I had purchased other things. I really didn't have enough money to also buy the Lamborghini, right? Someone's listening to the recording of this message. They're going to re- rewind right now. They're going to be like, wait, Lamborghini? What is this? Bought a Lamborghini? No, not a real one. But I'm looking at the thing, and I thought, I thought wow, that's, that's a really sweet remote control car. And it got my attention, and I had already priced it out, and I was doing the budget on it. I was like, boy, that would be a really neat thing. But I didn't get it. But ironically... And I don't know if this is something that, you know, my parents communicated or, 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 or what. Uh, I, I think this actually just happened on its own without any intervention. My grandmother bought me that, that exact remote car. I got that for Christmas from my grandmother. And I was very excited about it. And I, I very much enjoyed it. And then as I was having a conversation with her right after Christmas, I made a mistake And the mistake that I made was letting her know that I had already seen it in a store and uh, that I knew how much it cost. But then I doubled down on that mistake because if you're doing one dumb thing, why not do several, right? It's efficient. And so I told her how much I saw it for. And the reason that was a major mistake was because it was I saw it for half the price that she actually paid for it. She was not too happy. She's like, that better not have been the price that they had because I paid twice that much for it. And I was like, uh, I don't know how to get out of this, so I'm just going to go and step away. I feel like I've done enough here. Thank you. But here's the thing. There is no greater gift a person can receive than the gift of Jesus Christ. But do you suppose that we've ever made the, the mistake of undervaluing him? Just from the adult standpoint, from the standpoint of someone who understands the significance of the things that Scripture is talking about, the reasons for which he came, the things that he came to do, the ways in which he went went about his earthly ministry, his divine nature, all the things Scripture reveals to us about him. Do you think we ever make the mistake of undervaluing Christ? He's the greatest gift we've ever been given the opportunity to receive, but I think sometimes we undervalue him. I don't know that we give enough thought to the fact that he came to this earth that he took the form of a servant, even though he's God in the flesh. 
and that he did that so that he could meet our greatest need. He didn't do this for himself. He did this to meet our greatest need. I wonder if we give enough thought to the agony that he endured when his body was being tortured and all the things that he endured when he went to the cross to pay for our unrighteousness and our rebellion. He was treated like a rebel. He was treated like one who was unrighteous because of our sin that was being placed upon him. And sometimes I wonder if we even realize who Jesus is when we speak of him. Because Scripture, again, reveals to us that Jesus is God himself. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, one God existing in three persons. That's how Scripture reveals God's nature. So Jesus is, yes, he took on flesh, but he already existed. It's not like he came into existence in that moment. He's existed from all time. And I wonder, do we even realize who Jesus is when we speak of him? Now, I mentioned the prophet Daniel just a few minutes ago. And the book of Daniel is one of my favorite books in Scripture, so much so that my wife and I decided to name one of our sons Daniel. But the prophet Daniel, he was divinely able to prophesy about Jesus more than 500 years before Christ came to this earth and took on flesh. And I want to show you what Daniel said about Jesus. And it's a prophecy about his nature, but also it tells us what Jesus would do for all time. Consider this, especially if we're thinking, you know, have I ever undervalued Jesus Christ? Well, Daniel says this in chapter 7, starting with verse 13. He says, I saw in the night visions. Again, this was prophesied 500 years before the incarnation of Christ. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What's Daniel saying? That Jesus Christ, who came to this earth as a son of man, as the son of man, that he's the king of kings, that he's the Lord of lords, that he has an everlasting dominion, a kingdom that will never pass away, a kingdom that will never be destroyed, that ultimately he's the one our hearts should submit to in worship. Herod looked at Jesus one way. He looked at Jesus as competition. And he saw Jesus as competition to the authority that he wanted to possess over his own life. And again, the question for us is, do we want to be the authority over our own lives. That's what most people want in this world. And that's something that I'm certain that most of us can say, at least at some point in your life and in my life, that's really what we wanted. We wanted to be calling the shots. We wanted to be the authority. So do we want authority over our own life, or will we welcome the authority, the guidance, the presence, and the forgiveness of Jesus as the gift that those things are meant to be through him? There is no greater gift than Jesus, and he offers himself to us, and he invites us to welcome him in. He invites us to worship him as the the wise men did that, that day as they came to him, to say, you know what, my life was going in this direction, but now I've been led to you, Lord, and now I choose to worship you. He invites us to be changed people to become a new man, to become a new woman, to become a new child, a child of God.
And if you're a child of God, and if you're part of his family through faith in Jesus Christ, that kingdom that Daniel speaks of, this everlasting kingdom, this everlasting dominion that will not pass away, that kingdom, you and I get to be part of that kingdom. And that's our forever promise from Christ. So we celebrate this time of year when we think about the fact that Christ came to this earth and took on flesh and all the wonderful things that surround those events. But let's never forget the eternal significance to every single thing that he was doing. It was all very intentional. It's all ultimately for his glory and for your benefit so that you and I have the opportunity to be part of his kingdom forever as we trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this and to think about who you are and what you've come to this earth to accomplish through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we're so grateful for the fact that that you sent your Son into this world to take our sin upon himself, to live the perfect life on our behalf to explain to us what it actually means to have a relationship with you. Lord, we know that these are things that, naturally speaking, we would not understand. And we know, Lord, that there are many people in this world who think that they do have that all figured out, and they're going in in a direction that's unhealthy or unwise. They're going in a direction that's filled with all kinds of confusion because they don't understand the truth. Again, I look at the wise men in this portion of Scripture, and I think to myself, these are men that at one season of their life thought that they had it all figured out. They, they thought they had their spiritual life, their social life, their, their relational life. They thought they had it all figured out. And then you intervened. And they felt compelled by you to follow that star that you had shown them. And they came to your son and they worshiped your son, who is one with you. And they left as changed men. And Father, we pray that you would do the same miraculous work within us. Again, Father, I don't know the backstory for every one of us gathered here. I recognize there's the youngest of children and those of us that are at other seasons of life. We're all at different spots on that timetable of our our natural life on this earth. But Lord, we're so grateful for the fact that you've offered yourself to us. You've offered us new life. You've offered us the complete cleansing and forgiveness of our sin. You've offered us hope for the future, all through your Son, Jesus Christ. We're so grateful for these things. So, Father, we pray that we would accept the gift of your Son. We pray that we would worship Him. We pray that we would leave as changed people. Thank you, Lord, for your presence with us right now. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever hear sayings make their way through the culture and the church that seem nice in theory, but are actually theologically problematic? My name is Shara Donahue, and I'm the host of The Bible Never Said That, a podcast where we examine these popular sayings under the lens of biblical truth. We cover sayings like, God won't give you more than you can handle, time heals all wounds, and follow your heart. We also spend time exploring how people use Bible verses out of context. If you want to grow in discernment and truth, join us and subscribe at lifeaudio.com.